live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we are live in the Atacama Desert with all of my new best friends. <laughs> where I am taking their questions about all things in the universe. We record the show usually every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, and you can usually call 888-581-0708 to join the conversation. But today, it is all about the Atacama. But first, the news. Hello, space fans. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State, chief scientist at COSI for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio where we talk about all the beautiful things in our universe. This show lives on listener questions. We usually record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern in Studio A of WCBE Radio Columbus, and you can usually call 888-581-0708. In fact, you can call it right now and leave a voicemail if you want, and I will get back to it. When I get back, because right now I am in the Atacama Desert near San Pedro de Atacama at the wonderful, wonderful Alto Atacama Resort. I've said Atacama about 10 times already, and it's not going to stop. I have so many wonderful people here that have been joining me on this stargazing adventure into the deep desert of northern Chile. And... They are going to ask me a bunch of questions. They've been asking me questions nonstop all week, and I've loved it. Every single question has been a celebration of curiosity and science, and there's more to come. Go to spaceradioshow.com for all the links to live streaming, to social media, the whole deal. You know what to do. So are, are you guys ready to ask some questions? All right, let's get started. All right, we have a question ready to go. Why don't you tell everyone who you are and where you're from and why you wanted to come to the Atacama? I'm Darren. I live in Canada, and that should explain why I would want to come to the Atacama. Yeah, no, no, that is an excellent, excellent reason that everyone back in Columbus can uh, can empathize with. So, Darren, what's, what's your question? I remember hearing something about a little ice age uh, once upon a time, and uh, I was wondering with the solar cycle being pretty low if it were to stay low for a hundred years would that affect things at all climate wise would that be a useful thing to happen during the era of human caused climate change oh that is a wonderful question thank you for that so i forget the exact time frame but it was somewhere around four or five hundred years ago europe experienced what they what we call the little ice age where it was uh, a century, I think, of relatively low temperatures and a few decades of, you know, basically no summer. Like the summers were, were at best a mild winter. And this went on and on and on. Eventually we came out of it and everything was great. And there were famines, there were wars. This triggered a lot of societal change in Europe at the time. And coincidentally coincidentally when we look back at the sunspot record where we know the sun has these 11 year cycles of more sunspots and less sunspots more sunspots there was roughly overlapping this period a time when the sun had like no sunspots at all for a very very long time we call it the maunder minimum and it overlapped a little bit with this little ice age and so for a while we thought we we thought maybe the sun wasn't as active maybe it wasn't as luminous as bright and this caused uh, the world to be a little bit chillier than it should have been 
but there are a couple issues with that and we don't think there's a connection there. We actually now think it's just a coincidence. One is that the minimum, the solar minimum, doesn't quite line up with the Little Ice Age. The timing is a little bit off. And as far as we can tell from writings and records and, and archaeology from other cultures at the time, Europe was the only one to experience that. Uh, so now we think there was some uh, small climate change, some shifting of, say, the, the, uh, the, the Gulf Stream that goes up to Europe and keeps it warm. Maybe that shifted for just its own reasons for a few decades, plunged Europe into winter while the rest of the world was humming along pretty well. So currently, right now, our sun is not as active as it usually is. Our last sunspot cycle was, was really lame. It was really weak. We had hardly any sunspots. And as far as we can tell, the sun is still shining as brightly. The output, the energetic output is still the same. It's just not as, as violent as it usually is. So there was an interesting connection there that we thought for a long time we thought there was this connection. But it, and now I'm, we think it's just a, just a coincidence. That is a great question to get us started off, and I think we have some more, right? All right, we've got another question ready to go. Why don't you tell everyone where you're from, uh, who you are, and, and why you decided to come to the Atacama? Well, my name is Jane. I'm from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and I've come here to enjoy the beautiful night and the and its beautiful stars and the skies at night. And, and have the beautiful stars paid off. They have indeed. Oh yeah, it's been magic every single night. It really has. So what are you curious about? Well, I'd like to know why the scientific community has come to the conclusion that the universe is flat. Ah, uh, yes, yes. The flatness of our universe. First, let me define the word flat. When we, when we just toss out like, hey, the universe is flat, what does that mean? Like, just, just what does it mean? We have an intuition in our heads of what the word flatness means. Like, I have a table right here, and there's a sense that the table is flat. We're living on the earth, and there's a sense that the earth is not flat, that the, the glasses in front of you are probably curved or not flat. But we need more than intuition to define flatness. It's a mathematical thing. It's a, it's a thing that we need to define. And the word flatness in mathematics is defined a few ways. There's a few different tests you can apply to discover flatness. One is to examine how parallel lines behave. If you take two lines right next to each other and they start off completely parallel and you let them race forward to infinity, you can watch what they do. They might stay parallel forever. They might diverge. They might spread apart. They might converge. They might eventually intersect, depending on what's happening underneath them. If they stay parallel forever, then by definition, it's flat. If you were to say to draw, try to draw parallel lines on the surface of the Earth, let's say you were to start at the equator, and you start two lines perfectly parallel, going directly north, each one following a compass, a compass that's pointing perfectly north, and you start walking north, north, one foot exactly in front of the other. You don't turn left, you don't turn right, you just go forward. What happens? You intersect, you meet. 
Even though you started off, you and your friends started walking at the equator perfectly parallel, following, never turning left, never turning right, you intersect at a point we call the North Pole. That is one test you can apply to find that the Earth is curved. It's a sphere. If you were to start off going parallel on the bottom of a horse saddle, following straight lines, one foot in front of the other, never turning left, never turning right, and if, after a while, you would find that you were pretty far away from your traveling companion. Your lines have diverged. You are not flat. You're curved. So in our universe, our universe is not, you know, a piece of paper or the surface of the earth, but the power of this definition is that it's universal. The power of this definition is that you can apply it to any number of dimensions, two dimensions, three dimensions, 20 dimensions. The definition of flatness still applies. So in our universe, our three-dimensional, three spatial dimensions of our universe. Let's say you're to take two laser beams, you know, two, two laser pointers, and you lined them up perfectly so they are perfectly parallel, and then you turned them on. The light advances one foot in front of the other, perfectly parallel, and say that extends out thousands, millions, billions of light years. Do the light beams converge? Do they intersect? Do they spread apart? Do they continue on in parallel forever? Now, of course, there's things like black holes and stars and galaxies, and they bend space. They can affect the path of light. Let's ignore all that stuff because this is cosmology. We're talking about the whole entire universe. Let's, let's pretend all that stuff, that's local stuff. Who cares? We want to know about the curvature of the entire universe. Over the course of billions of years, do parallel light rays stay parallel? The answer is yes. And we know this because we have light from the very, very early universe. We have light that has come to us from 13.8 billion years ago. We have light that has traveled through 45 billion light years of space before reaching our telescope. This light is the cosmic microwave background. This light is the earliest source of light in our universe. And when you look at it, there are patterns on the cosmic microwave background. There are features, tiny little differences in light, tiny little fluctuations, tiny little bumps and wiggles. And the crazy thing about it, as crazy as that sounds, this cosmic microwave background, we understand the physics of it really, really well. We understand the physics. We know how big those bumps and wiggles were when they were generated. And we can compare that. We know how big they were when they are generated. The light has traveled through space to reach us. And then we can go out and measure it. We say, oh, how big is that wiggle? How big is that wiggle? How big is that? How big is that wiggle? We can look at those statistics. And if the universe was curved, then the light coming from that early universe, coming from the cosmic microwave background, would have spread or would have collapsed. It would have changed the pattern. And it turns out it doesn't. The size of the patches on that cosmic microwave background are exactly what we predict. Exactly. They haven't changed. Those light rays coming from the distant universe have stayed parallel. Have stayed parallel. And that's one of the key pieces of evidence we have that our universe is flat. With an accuracy, we know the universe is flat to an accuracy of a tenth of a percent. 
based on exactly that. What a wonderful question. We have to go to break here, folks, in just a little bit. I am Paul Sutter. You're listening to Space Radio, and this show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can support the show, and I will return with more adventures from the Atacama. Mike Foley here to remind you to shop at wcbe.org this holiday season. Your holiday shopping can also support this fine public radio station, Central Ohio's original NPR affiliate, 90.5. Learn more by clicking the Shop and Support tab at wcbe.org. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter. You're listening to Space Radio. I am recording this live from the Atacama Desert of Northern Chile with all of my new best friends. That's right. That's what I love to hear. Where we are, we are exploring the desert. We are drinking a lot of water. We are applying sunblock like 20 times a day. It is ridiculous. And we are enjoying like crystal clear night skies. It is brilliant. It is like, it's like a jewel box. When you, when you walk out at night, isn't it crazy? It's just like, it just glitters. It is, I, I cannot, I don't have the words to describe it. I'm flabbergasted every time I see this night sky, and I'm so glad that I get to share it with you. You, the people in the room, not you, the people who are listening to this right now. I'm sorry, you, you missed it. But we, so, the, <laughs> so I've got another question right here. Uh, why don't you share with everyone who you are, where you're from, and why you wanted to come to the Atacama? Uh, my name is Chris, I'm from Florida. I wanted to come here to really see the best skies that I've heard existed. and. It is absolutely delivered. That's what we like to hear. Uh, so, so what are you curious about? Well, I was curious if the rings of Saturn are stable or if they'll eventually become a, a new moon or, or something like that. Oh, that is a really fun question about the rings of Saturn. You know, you know the first person to see the rings of Saturn was Galileo. Totally blown away, had no clue what he was seeing. Eventually, later generations of astronomers realized that there were rings, and then the rings had subrings. And then, in the past few decades, with missions like Cassini, we learned that those subrings had sub subrings and sub 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 rings. There's there's a lot of rings in this system around Saturn, and the stability in the age of the rings is a huge puzzle. It is an outstanding problem in astronomy. We don't know how old the rings of Saturn are. And the reason we don't is because we have two conflicting pieces of evidence. We almost have a paradox here with the rings of Saturn. The rings of Saturn, the material, it's almost pure water ice. That's why it makes it so glittery, so shiny, so easy to see. Like 99.9% water ice. And if you were to collect all the material, it would be a, a small moon, a relatively small moon, not a big moon, but not the smallest moon, you know, a, a medium moon. So how do you get that much material around a planet? Like, how do you just get that much raw stuff? Because you look at Saturn now and you look at its orbit and it's pretty empty. Space is pretty empty. So the rings must be old, right? Because... There's no material around Saturn anymore. So the, the rings must have been formed in the early days of the solar system when there is all sorts of junk everywhere where it could collect that material to form a ring. 
because that was the only time in the history of our solar system when that much material was around Saturn. But like I said, the rings are pure water ice. They're highly reflective. Our solar system is a dusty place, not unlike the dust that we constantly have to scrape off our feet, you know, here in the desert. It's a dusty place. There's tiny little bits. If you put a chunk of pure water ice in the solar system and let it hang out for 4 billion years, it's not going to be so shiny anymore. It's going to get dirty. It's going to accumulate dust. It won't be as lustrous anymore. But the rings aren't. They're clean. They're sparkling clean. You could grab a chunk of Saturn ice and put it in your drink without having to rinse it off or anything. That's how it's, it's crazy. So one line of reasoning says that the rings of Saturn are ancient. Another line of reason, you know, 4 billion years old at least. Another line of reasoning says that the rings of Saturn can't be older than 100 million years because they would have gotten too dirty by now. So what's the resolution? We don't know. We don't know. Are the rings of Saturn a temporary phenomenon? Well, that doesn't fit because there isn't enough material. Do they get recycled? Do they change character? Do they glue together and heat up every once in a while, losing their dust and then get ripped apart again? Is there some other mechanism that cleans them off, you know, dusts them off every few hundred million years? We don't know. We don't know. That's a wonderful question. And my favorite answer to give on this show, as everyone knows, is we don't know. Because it means I still have a job. Now, we have enough time in this segment for another question. Who is next? Come on up. My name's Rob. I'm from Cypress, Texas. And I came here as a present to myself. Hey, you know what? You deserve it. Thank you. You deserve it. I want you to know that. What are you curious about today? In the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, is there precious metals in the asteroids? Oh, is there, is there juicy stuff in that? Juicy. Are you, you going to go prospecting? Make money. Yeah, make some bucks. There is, there's no joke. There's so much money in the asteroid belt. Like unbelievable amounts of metals, precious metals, raw materials, or elements. I mean, think about elements on the earth. You know, we have to dig through the ground to get at gold and platinum and, and iron, you know, all this stuff, aluminum, all the stuff that makes, you know, our civilization work. Where did that stuff come from? Well, the earth was born with it, right? But the earth has changed over time. It's mixed and flexed. It's pieces have sunk down and welled up. So in order to get to it, we have to dig, 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 dig. Just because some of that stuff, that precious stuff happens to be near the surface where we can access it. Well, the asteroids are made from the exact same stuff as the earth. They're just a little bit further out. They never got glued together to form a planet. So it's the same elements just sitting there. So you can go up to an asteroid. You can start digging. You don't have to dig very hard because the gravity is low and it's small. I forget the estimates. I forget the exact numbers. So I'll make up a number that sounds right, but it gives you the right impression. A single asteroid, a single asteroid has something like $60 trillion worth of raw materials in it. There's enough gold in a single asteroid, you know, a typical asteroid, that you would crash the world's economy of gold. You would send the price of gold plummeting to, so it would be worthless. Like kids would play with it 
and you would lose it. And you're like, oh man, I lost, lost a bunch of gold today. Whatever. You know, it, 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 like that's how much gold it is. That's how much raw materials, aluminum. It's just everything. There's so much wealth, potential wealth in the asteroid belt. The challenge of course is getting there and digging it out and bringing it back to earth. At some point, at some point, there'll be a balance. There'll be a tipping point where it makes just enough economic sense where we could build and design rockets or use existing rockets to go out, collect materials, bring it back to earth and be able to sell it and still make a profit off it. We're not there yet. We may not be there for decades, but uh, there will be a tipping point where we will mine the asteroid belt. Excellent question. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. We have time though for one last question. Why don't you share with everyone who you are, where you're from, and why you came to the Atacama Desert. My name is Woody Bowers and I'm from Radnor, Ohio. And I came to the Atacama Desert with my wife and daughter to get out of my comfort zone a little bit. Are you uncomfortable right now? Absolutely not. <laughs> it didn't work, did it? <laughs> what are you curious about today? Well, I just read in some dubious journals that physicists just as confirmed evidence of a possible fifth fundamental force and it's a type of boson that's 30 times heavier than an electron and I'd just like to know how do you feel about this great question how do I feel about it we would love for there to be a new force of nature you know we, we have our four familiar ones the four we all know and love electromagnetism weak nuclear strong nuclear and gravity we have been searching for fundamental for other fundamental forces. Is there something out there? Like why four? Why four forces of nature? Why not three? Maybe there are five. Maybe there are 27. So far, we have found zero evidence for any, any new forces of nature. We are searching currently in the largest structures of our universe in the dark matter and dark energy realm. There might be extra forces there that play no part in our everyday experience. That's an active search. Now, along with that, there is this thing called the Large Hadron Collider that is smashing particles together, looking, looking for new physics, looking for new, new mysteries. And what happens with, when you get a news article like this is every once in a while, when you run an experiment like the Large Hadron Collider, you do so many runs, you collect so much data that there are little blips and bloops, little, little things that appear in the data. And you can report it. You can, you can write an article about it, say, hey, we found a little blip and bloop, found a little something mysterious in the data. You can publish it. And then, you know, journalists and, and magazines and everything will say, hey, yeah, they found it. They found something new. Here it is, a new particle, a new particle, a new force, a new, a, a new thing. And then you go back and you keep running. And then because of the nature of statistics, the nature of data, uh, the bloop goes away, just disappears. This has happened a few times with a large Hadron Collider where we see something interesting, something potentially interesting that's worth an article like, hey, community, we, we found something interesting and then digging back in and it's gone. So until the digging happens, I'm not gonna say anything. Well, I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna believe it. I'm not gonna believe it. It might be there. It might be there. There might be a fifth force. There might be a new particle. There isn't quite enough evidence yet. 
Excellent, excellent question. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter. This show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. This show is also brought to you by you. Visit patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing Dan Michalko for being awesome and all the fine crew at WCB Radio and all my new best friends here in the Atacama Desert. For making this show possible, visit spaceradioshow.com for more info, links to the live streams in the episode archive. You can also follow me directly on Twitter and Facebook. My name is at Paul Matt Sutter. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing and transmission.